WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening and thank you for tuning in to Impact Exposure. I am Abby Newton and today is Tuesday, October 8th. Now this week it is homecoming at Michigan State University and it has already been a week full of excitement. You know, homecoming here at Michigan State is unique in that it draws back the land-grant institution history. It brings back how Spartans invest themselves into this campus, into this institution to better the world around them. Now today on Exposure, we will talk about this thought process and we will talk about homecoming as we speak with Michigan State University Executive Director of Alumni Relations, Scott Westerman. In addition to talking about homecoming, we will touch base with a few Michigan State University music composers. And during the breaks on today's show, we will feature a few of their songs. Now later, we will explore the economic and social growth of Africa, the apple harvest, and the apple butter festival at the Fenner Nature Center this weekend. I'm Abby Newton, and you are listening to Exposure. As mentioned earlier, this week is homecoming. It is a time that Spartans come back to the banks of the Red Cedar to gather and reminisce about the time spent in East Lansing. We spoke with Scott Westerman, who is, by formal title, the Associate Vice President for Alumni Relations and the Executive Director for Alumni Relations. However, he prefers to just be called Head Servant. Well, whenever you graduate from Michigan State University, you never really leave the banks of the Red Cedar. Being a Spartan is always in your mind and your heart, and nothing is so magic as coming back to campus. Uh, and this time of year, especially this week, it's at its height. That's it's, it. Definitely looks like it. Now, what if you know as your position? What do you tell people that being a Spartan is all about when you're introducing them to campus or introducing them to this new Spartan lifestyle? Well, we like to think of being a Spartan as kind of an ethic that floats above your life and touches everything that you say and do. When you make the decision to be a Spartan, uh, it's not just about coming to Michigan State and taking the classes. It's about really agreeing to kind of abide by a set of beliefs that becomes the Spartan character. And uh, there are so many great things that we associate with great Spartans. Compassion, never ending the learning process, community service, um, diversity, leadership. All of those things are what we are. And, and a lot of people talk about that stuff. But Spartans are the people that actually roll up their sleeves and do it. We live it. That's what we call the Spartan life. And being a previous Spartan or being a Spartan alum right now, and also the head servant, if you will, how has this changed your excitement for the Spartan spirit? Well, I've never really left Michigan State University, <laughs> although I've been gone from campus for the greater part of my career. I graduated in 1978 and spent most of the next 30 years as a cable television executive and an entrepreneur. Um, so when I had the opportunity to come back to Michigan State and serve the Alumni Association, it really was kind of a dream come true. Doing something for Michigan State University has always been on my bucket list. Um, and that's because everywhere I've been, 
every good thing that's happened to me has had what we call six degrees of Spartan nation. There's always been some Spartan connection to the good things that happened. Colleen and I have lived in 10 states. We've had 13 houses and 35 years of marriage. We've uh, worked in a number of places. And it seems like the first people that always raised their hand, that always came to our door to welcome us, had some direct or indirect connection with Michigan State University. So for me to be able to be at the center of that energy, the center of a small team of 20 people who serve 500,000 Spartans around the world, that's a dream job. Has there been one experience that you can pinpoint when you really said, wow, that's what the Spartans all about in your connections in the past or those six degrees as Spartans? Well, I would have had a different story until about two weeks ago. Really? And uh, I guess the, the, the kind of the essence of what being a Spartan is all about happened uh, during the, and after the Youngstown State game. And that was when somebody painted a very unhappy slogan above Spartan Stadium. When that happened, I was in a taxi cab in Washington, D.C. on my way to a scholarship function the D.C. Spartans hold a scholarship gala every year around this time, and, and I was going to go emcee it, and I was looking forward to talking to 100 or so great Spartans who are involved in government and business around Washington. And as I got off the plane and jumped in the cab to go over to the venue, I, I popped my iPhone out and looked at my Facebook feed, and I saw all these pictures with Go Blue in the sky. And um, I was thinking, that's, why would Spartans be putting that stuff on their Facebook pages? And as I looked at the comments, it was, this is happening over Spartan Stadium. And uh, initially, it was the usual kind of, um, so this is how they're spending their money, and <laughs> Walmart must have had a really great quarter, and that kind of thing. But then it started to get a little negative, and that troubled me. So um, I tried to think of how we could turn this thing into a positive. And, um, you know, this past month was Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and um, my wife is a two-time ovarian cancer survivor. And um, that whole adventure was pivotal to us coming to Michigan State. When we got here in East Lansing, she actually had her treatment at the University of Michigan Comprehensive Cancer Center. And of course, with that going on, <laughs> what I wanted to do whenever I went down there with her was to wear my green and white. And I took alumni pins and I found out who all the Spartans were that worked there, because there's a lot of them. But one of the things that really started to touch me was how wonderful the care was there. And as Colleen finished her last chemotherapy, I told the nurses, look, I always wear my green and white when I'm here, but I have to tell you that I have a real respect for you. And I want to thank you guys for saving my wife's life. And that's when they pointed to the, the bag of medicine that was going into her. And they said, we're not saving your life. That is, and that's cisplatin, which was invented at Michigan State University. So at that moment, we knew we'd made the right decision to come home to East Lansing. And we also understood what the rivalry should really be all about. And that's not fighting against one another or bringing one another down, but really looking forward together in the same direction. So that's kind of what I put on. I, I, I wrote a little paragraph, and something like, you know, my Spartan friends. You see what, they, what has happened above Spartan Stadium. Let's show what the Spartan Nation can do. Let's give money to the Michigan Ovarian Cancer Alliance, which happens to be located in Ann Arbor in the shadow of the big house. Let's give 5 to $50, see how much we can raise. I'm a private pilot, so I knew it cost him about $3,000 to do that. So let's try and raise three grand. Um, and as you probably have heard, I mean, it just went totally viral beyond my wildest dreams. And, um, you know, by the end of the second week, we'd raised over $40,000. And when we learned that Friday that that actual skywriting had been paid for by the University of Michigan Athletic Department, 
I wrote a big thank you note on Facebook <laughs> to David Brandon, who's the Mark Hollis of University of Michigan, thanking mm-hmm. him for really rallying the Spartan nation to do something good. And at that point, I really wanted to change the conversation to move it above just this one thing, because what really is important right now is that we preserve the Spartan spirit and the institution. So I challenged Wolverines and Spartans alike to raise money for their university, to help endow scholarships so people like you can come to Michigan State, even if you might not have the financial wherewithal, Mm -hmm. to endow professorships so we can attract the best and brightest because it's becoming a very competitive environment to get good talent. And also to give to the annual fund so that President Simon has that kind of extra cash in her wallet (laughs) if there's an opportunity that she sees to be able to take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And the way that the people have responded, the Spartan nation has responded, really confirmed in my mind what true Spartans are all about. I mean, two weeks, over $40,000, and some national awareness for ovarian cancer that never happened before. Because the story literally went viral. Um, you know, I was on, was on television here in Florida, on all the radio talk shows. And when I saw that it was being covered by places like ESPN and CBS News, I knew that this was the power of what Spartans can do if we look in the same direction together. And how do you channel that to continue to grow, to maybe accomplish other things in the near or distant future? Well, I think it's incumbent on all of us as Spartans to model that behavior. So, um, you know, and it goes beyond just helping Spartans helping Spartans. I mean, that's our motto at the MSU Alumni Association. We are Spartans helping Spartans. But really, it is the essence of our land-grant philosophy. I mean, the government gave us the land on which all of this campus sits right now. And they gave it to us with a mandate, and that was to change the world for the better. So when we first opened, we made it possible for farmers who never had studied to be able to understand how to feed the world. Uh, We really created the Internet with cooperative extension. That was an MSU invention. And everything from homogenized milk to hybrid corn to this, uh, the world's most often prescribed cancer drug that saves tens of thousands of lives. That happens because Spartans model that behavior. So what we try and do every day is to, is to do that in our interactions with the, our 150 clubs uh, around the world and everybody we meet at the university as well. And with this Spartan spirit and Spartan pride comes the Spartan traditions. What do you say is your favorite tradition here at this institution? Wow, I have so many. <laughs> um, there's nothing quite like kissing your wife under the Beaumont Tower. Oh. It's a magical to be on the banks of the Red Cedar in the spring, right before the thaw, when the ducks are kind of walking across the ice <laughs> and going through the rapids to find food. Nothing can beat... Dairy star ice cream. Um, and, uh, you know, the feeling that you get when you walk by the Spartan statue, I think, sums it all up. It's, it's, it's something that if you are a true Spartan, you can't walk by that guy without feeling what being a Spartan is all about. So those are some of the traditions. I mean, around homecoming, I mean, there, all of our um, great interest groups have things going on that weekend. I mean, we have uh, one of the greatest African-American alumni associations in the world, the MSU Black Alumni, which has a huge endowment of scholarship funds to help make our education accessible. Um, everything from Latino, LGBT. There's a radio reunion usually every year at homecoming. Whatever your interest was, either inside or outside of class, there's something going on for you this coming week mm-hmm. at MSU. And speaking of homecoming, it's this week, like we said, and you went to um, the Crowell House and you, or how do you pronounce that? Cole's House. Cole's, Some say Cowles, I think it's Cole's. Okay, Mm -hmm. I cut that part out, but I always get confused. Um, Anyway, you went and you talked to the homecoming court this year, and I was kind of looking at your speech and what you were saying, and 
the thing that really caught my eye was the following. You said the day you made the decision to come to Michigan State University, you joined an unstoppable force of leaders, lifesavers, and world changers who ultimately endure the darkest val va val valleys and climb the highest mountains. And when you look down from the summit, you will shout to the world the one thing that makes us the hope for a better tomorrow and the envy of everyone else. We are Spartans. It's, the Spartan life is not an easy life. Mm -hmm. It's not supposed to be. Um, if it was going to be easy, it wouldn't be any fun. So we Spartans, we look for the challenges. We go where the biggest problems are. And we don't just research them. We're a top-tier research university, but we roll up our sleeves and actually apply that knowledge to make the world a better place. And that's what we celebrate at homecoming, that great, uh, that great feeling, that great ethic, and the responsibility of being a Spartan. And you truly have taken that responsibility to heart in all of your business ventures, in your ventures here, and throughout your life. And one of the th words that you live by is you say, find what makes you happiest and somehow find a way to get paid for that. Do you feel like you've done that here at Michigan State? That's always been my quest. Um, and, you know, it, it hasn't always been easy because a lot of the jobs that I had didn't exist before I created them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of what we do. Uh, I think life is too short not to be happy. So if you're unhappy now, figure out what it is that makes you happy. Figure out why you are unhappy. Let go of those things that are unproductive for you uh, now. And in some cases, that means changing friends. It may mean changing a major from what your parents thought you should be to what you really want to be. Um, it can mean pushing the reset button. Your generation will probably do that six or seven times. There's six or seven different careers over the course of your professional life. Um, but it really is, at the end of the day, about really defining what happiness means to you and chasing it with reckless abandon. And with this happiness, you talked about bucket lists earlier. So what's next on your bucket list? Wow, I have been rich, richly blessed because I've been able to do just about everything that was ever on my bucket list. Really? Uh, many of them thanks to um, Michigan State. I've, I've flown just about every kind of aircraft that there is. I've jumped from uh, an airplane with the Army Golden Knights. Um, I've been on every single continent. Uh, with the exception of Antarctica, and we'll work that out sometime before the end of the day. So um, I guess what's really on my bucket list now is to try and um, spread the Spartan message as far and wide as I can, as long as I can. And how do you measure that? That's a great question. It's the biggest challenge in the alumni business is measuring the effectiveness of your work and figuring out the return on investment. And what it comes down to for me is if I'm able to change one life for the better, if our ovarian cancer thing that Spartans did save, saves one life, then it's all worthwhile. So what I do is I try, and, I try and influence Spartan lives one relationship at a time and not worry about how many points go on the board, but just worry about the person I'm with right now. Live in the moment, make the most of the moment, and do the most that we can to make that moment the best possible moment. Well, thank you very much, Scott Westerman. It is a pleasure. My pleasure.
Welcome back. You are listening to Exposure, and I'm Abby Newton. This past weekend, German food, German music, and German festivities invaded Lansing at Oktoberfest. We have the full story from Impact's Miguel Martinez. The music was loud, the drinks were pouring, and the spirits were high this weekend in Old Town Lansing as they celebrated the 8th annual Old Town Oktoberfest. While Old Town is known for its multiple family-friendly events, including jazz and blues fest, Oktoberfest catered to an older demographic. According to Steve Bonet, a volunteer for Oktoberfest, who I spoke to last week leading up to the event. Age 21 and over, and we do that because it is a drinking event, and we think it's um, kind of appropriate to have a not-kid event for when there's, when there's alcohol involved. And boy was alcohol involved. The festival offered around 20 different selections of beer and an abundance of different German foods, which were enjoyed by many. That was birthday girl Bridget Emery and Doug Robinson who were enjoying the atmosphere provided by the event. Robinson even drove to Lansing from out of town in order to attend the night's festivities. The original Oktoberfest is held in Munich, Germany every autumn and features German foods, drinks and music in order to celebrate traditional Bavarian culture. The Old Town version of the event is a little different as Bonet explained. Oktoberfest is not an authentic German festival, but it's what we call an inspired German festival. Um, there's a lot of people that have really down-to-the-letter Oktoberfest, and ours is a little more infused with um, some contemporary music at the end of the night, so we have a little bit of mix with um, a traditional Oktoberfest. One of the featured bands delivering the contemporary music was the Polish Muslims, who played some feel-good tunes throughout the night. Still, while the contemporary take on traditional German festivals seemed to be okay with most, there were a few individuals who were determined to keep the Bavarian culture alive. Will Tyler White, also known as Tuba Charlie, was one of these individuals. He proudly sported his Bavarian attire, adding to the festive feel of the night. Lederhosen, yeah, traditional German working clothes, although they use them more for dress-up now and uh, tourist stuff. White explained that he has attended the festival frequently and has only watched it grow with time. And while they changed some of the core German qualities, he took it upon himself to remind everyone what Oktoberfest was all about. Oh yeah, definitely better, except they don't have any real typical German bands this year, like with accordion and tuba. We need to have you That's up why there. I brought my own tuba. Gotta keep the tradition alive. And with his tuba, White played the Michigan State fight song, wrapping up an exciting and cheerful night in Old Town's 8th annual Oktoberfest. With Impact News, I'm Miguel Martinez. Welcome back. I'm Abby Newton, assistant professor in the Department of Political Science. Carolyn Logan has been working on research about Africa for quite some time. She is the deputy director of the Afrobarometer Project. Through this, she studied the economic and social growth of Africa over time. She came to the studio to tell us about her project and her findings. 
The Afrobarometer is a project that's doing public opinion research in, we're now in 35 different countries in Africa. This study reports on 34 of those. We're waiting for the last data set to come in. But the barometers, it, we, our focus areas are public opinion, uh, attitudes towards democracy and governance, and economic conditions especially. So we're asking people what they think about democracy, how well their governments are performing, whole host of other questions also. And the barometers, it, it came out of a some research that was being done by one professor here, Michael Bratton, who's who's now a university distinguished professor in political science, and he and a, two other people in uh, at UCT in South Africa, University of Cape Town, and uh, University of Ghana were also doing similar research projects, and they brought it together into the Afrobarometer. It was at a time when several regional barometers were forming. So there's also a Latino barometer that does survey research all around Latin America, Central and South America. There's a, there was a new European barometer that was doing uh, similar work in the new democracies of Eastern Europe back at the time that this was being formed. They were, they were new. There's now an Asia barometer, an Arab barometer run out of University of Michigan in part, and Princeton, and uh, I don't know if I've missed anybody. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, they cover the world. <laughs> so, yeah. And they, those uh, people from all those have also formed a group called the Global Barometer. So we're all trying to do some common work so we can mm -hmm. compare across the globe as well. Okay. So, In summary, you found that the growth is not trickling down to the poorest citizens or that actual growth rates might be inflated in Africa. Right. right. So the, the big, you know, a lot of, there's been a lot of concern over the years about how much negative news comes out of Africa. One of the really positive things in the last few years, one of the positive stories from there has been this narrative people describe as the Africa Rising narrative, which is that there's been quite high economic growth rates across the continent. They've averaged about 45 to 5% across the entire continent for the last 10 years. And, you know, some countries are actually doing quite a bit better than that. The problem is that in when we look at our data, um, we, we ask people in our surveys, one of the questions we ask them is what we call our lived poverty question, which asks people how often in the past year they've had to go without food, water, medical care, uh, cooking fuel, and a cash income. And when we look at the responses to those questions, we're not seeing much change. So you've got, on the one hand, these very high reported growth rates, but on the other hand, li very little impact on the level of poverty that we're seeing. So the, the, there's two possible explanations. There's some concern that the, the growth rates being reported might be inflated, but probably even the bigger concern is that, that the growth that's happening is not basically job-creating growth. It tends to be in a few sectors, especially resource, resource extraction sectors and things that just aren't generating jobs for people, which means that the, the benefits of the growth are accruing to relatively few people and, and not changing the lives of people at the grassroots level. And was so. this surprising to you, these findings? Uh, to some degree, uh, you know, I don't think we expected to see so little change mm -hmm. over time. What we've got, I should, I should say, we have, this time we covered 34 countries. Um, and what we also see across those 34, just in a snapshot right now in 2012, basically, um, is that roughly one in five people across the continent report that they go without uh, food and water and medical care on a frequent basis, and about half of all people report that they at least occasionally go without those things. Now, looking over time, we the, the project's 
gradually been growing and increasing the number of countries where we are. So if you look, 10 years ago, we had 16 countries. So if we just look at those 16 countries over time, the levels of poverty, the average level of poverty is completely flat. There's almost no change at all. Now, there's a few countries that have improved, but there's also some that have declined, including Botswana and South Africa, two of the sort of two countries that are kind of seen as the economic mm -hmm. leading lights on the continent, where we've actually seen the levels of poverty people are reporting at the grassroots increasing. So, so you found this information. Mm -hmm. Now, what can be done with it, or what do you hope to be done with well, it? Well, one of the things that we looked at... Um, at this is kind of a first cut looking at the data, but one of the things that we found was that there's a very high correlation between the um, levels of poverty that people are experiencing and their access to infrastructure and their level of education. So we we record for the areas where we do interviews, whether there's a good road network, paved roads, um, schools, medical clinics, police stations, all those kinds of things. And there's quite high levels of correlation between poverty and distance from those. So if you're far from paved roads and far from, from other kinds of infrastructure, the levels of poverty are much higher. Uh, likewise, if you look at individuals' level of education, there's a very high correlation. So the, the fundamental things that would be the recommendations coming out of that would be more investment in infrastructure mm -hmm. and in education to try and overcome some of those things. Some of the other stuff we saw, there's a, we've, we've put out two kind of parallel studies right now. The other one looks at people's overall evaluations of the state of their, their national economy. And on that, again, we're seeing that individuals are um, slightly over half say that the condition of their national economy is fairly or very bad mm -hmm. uh, compared to just about a third who say it's good. When people look at their own economic situation, about they're, they're pretty evenly divided. About one-third say that it's gotten better in the past year, one-third say it's gotten worse and one third stay it's gotten the same say it's stayed the stay stayed the same sorry um and and then the other thing that really jumps out is when you look at people's evaluation of the quality of their government's economic management we ask people how well the government is doing handling different uh, things within the society, and there's several questions about the economy. If you ask how well they're handling overall economic management, slightly over 50% say they're doing it badly. If you ask how well they're doing at creating jobs, 71% said they were doing badly. And if you ask how well they're doing at narrowing the income gaps between the rich and the poor, 76% say they're doing it badly. So what you're seeing is that the public's perceptions are not at all in sync with this this global image of mm -hmm. Africa improving. And in fact, they're giving their governments really failing marks on this stuff. So the, you know, again, the, the, both the emphasis on infrastructure and education access and uh, our other recommendation would be that governments need to be looking more towards focusing as much on poverty alleviation and distribution of benefits as they are on just plain growth. Mm -hmm. So uh, job creating growth is really what is is needed at this point. And there is, like you said, a big gap between, you know, the poor and the rich. Mm -hmm. And so how fatal is this to a country or a continent? Well, it's certainly one of the big concerns mm -hmm. is that, you uh, um, you know, income inequality can and growing income inequality, which certainly some countries are seeing, um, you know, can can increase uh, political tensions and instability. So, uh, you know, 
it's one of the sort of next layers of analysis to do here is is more of a look at which countries are are where on on the spectrum and look at the levels of income equality and especially the trends in the levels mm -hmm. of income inequality and whether they're increasing or decreasing and and take some lessons from that as well but you know one of the things we also see is that that if you look at the level of lived poverty it tends to be much higher in countries coming out of conflict um, so that, you know, which is not terribly surprising that those countries have been set back quite considerably. But as you suggest, there's also the concern that that if these trends continue, it's going to be a new source or an increasing source of conflict within those countries. You know, The Economist called Africa the hopeful continent mm -hmm. not too long ago. Do you think that that still could be in their midst, you know, being this hopeful continent despite all these setbacks? I mean, do you see that there could be room for improvement? Right. I don't, I wouldn't say I necessarily see it as a setback. Mm -hmm. It's just that there aren't the kind of gains we'd hope to see. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're going backwards necessarily, <laughs> but they're not going forward the way we'd hoped. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think that we want the message out of this to be all negative. Right. I mean, certainly the growth has been there and it's important that, that things are picking up on the continent, but it's also sort of a, um, a wake up call that, that the problem isn't solved yet, it's that there's, that, process, yeah, maybe. that there's still more to be done in terms of the kinds of growth that are happening and that we're sort of not, you know, it's, it's a tempering of this very positive, uh, message that's been out there that things are all great. Mm -hmm. It's not quite as great as that, which doesn't mean that, you know, it's not hopeful. In fact, if we look at, you know, democratization trends, um, you know, we're seeing some gains in some countries and, and some of the countries, for example, Ghana is one of the countries where we've seen the most improvement in lived poverty. I did say there were a, a few countries that mm -hmm. had improved. Um, Ghana is one of them. It had, I think, the highest level of improvement. And it's also one of the countries that's made the most progress democratically and sort of most consolidating its political system. It's had a change in leadership. Um, so you can really, it looks like you can really draw some connections. And this is consistent with findings we've had in the past as well, that the more democratization you're seeing, it's definitely can be linked to reducing levels of poverty. So um, to the, the extent that there's improvements like that happening in the level of democracy, we hope that if that continues in the same direction, that we'll also see improvements in the poverty levels as well. And just having these numbers and these facts is positive. Mm -hmm. You know, so you really can see these changes over time. Right. So. Well, and, you know, the other the other reason, you know, going back to when the barometers were created, I mean, one of the things that all of us involved in this feel strongly is that, you know, Africa in particular had a lot of very authoritarian governments for a long time. People couldn't speak their minds. And, you know, all you knew about what people thought on the ground was what their leaders said they thought. And when there were democratic openings in a lot of countries in the 90s, it was recognized as an opportunity to go in and find out what people really think. Mm -hmm. and, and, that, and, and we've really advocated the idea that that should be a part of the debate in a democracy is that, you know, we should be able to hear what people are really saying. So I think one of the things we feel about results like this is that it's an important check. You know, you've got leaders who are very proud of their economic growth and going out and, you know, putting that out there and you know that's great but but there is a but mm -hmm. <laughs> which is that the people are saying hey you know it's not 
it's not getting to where we are. And so it's really, in our view, important to have the opportunity to get that side of things into the public arena, which which wasn't there, you know, 10 years ago when, when before public opinion surveys were really being done. So, Well, thank you very much for your time. I think it's an important issue that you've shed light on. Not really issue, but I finding. You know, I think that's a better word, an important finding that you've shed light on and worked hard to do so. <laughs> so with that, thank you very much for your time. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. We appreciate your interest. Now when I listen to a song, I'm always wondering, who's singing this? But really, I should be asking myself, who composed this song? Next Tuesday, composers will be celebrated as the College of Music puts on a performance of student works. I invited a few of these composers into the studio to talk about the world of musical composition. Well, my name is Ashley Bush, and I am a third-year master's student in music composition. And I have been playing flute for 16 years, but in light of studying composition, I've kind of let that go. <laughs> um, these past couple years, I've actually also been studying operatic voice and conducting to better myself as a composer. And so I dabble a little bit in everything. <laughs> uh, I'm Philip Rice. Uh, let's see. I've been playing the piano since I was five, but like Ashley, I sort of let that go as I became more <laughs> of a composer. Um, right now I'm studying uh, to learn the play, to play the carillon. So the bell tower and Beaumont tower, I'm working on learning that. Is that a lot um, of work? Is it difficult? Yeah, it's it's pretty hard, okay. um, and it's kind of nerve-wracking because everybody can hear you. So when we like, look practicing. at the bell tower and it's on the hour and nothing's happening, is that your fault? Um, if, I'm just yeah, kidding. Yeah, if the automatic <laughs> thing is turned off, then yes, it is. Okay. Um, but yeah, uh, and I'm working on my doctorate in composition right now. Um, got a few years left, so. Okay. I'm Justin Rito. Um, I'm also working on a doctorate in composition. Um, I'm in my first year of that program, and I'm also a pianist. I'm not really ready to say that I've given it up yet, but um, <laughs> I'm still fighting to try and play. It gets more and more difficult as time goes on, and I'm really focusing on composition. And these three folks are all here representing um, the College of Music here at Michigan State because they're putting on a performance of student works this weekend on October 15th. But first, I kind of want to talk to you about the art of composition. And it sounds like a lot of you have started really in the music realm, of course, playing, but have led more into composition. Is that a common transition? Well, I don't think necessarily people let go of their roots in performance. Mm -hmm. But yeah, most people usually do start out in performance. And uh, that's something that we're actually trying to change because students that start with composition younger, you know, have a better feel for how the craft works the older they get. But pretty much everyone that I've ever been in contact with has started in performance and they've just found a passion for writing and I think it's kind of back and forth between those who have totally given up their instrument and those who actually perform their own works. I know that Phil does a lot of performing of his own works, and the music that I write for flute is way too difficult for me to perform. So I would much rather have somebody a lot better than me perform my music. 
But absolutely. I mean, you never want to give up your performance roots because a lot of times that's how we'll write. We'll go to the piano. We'll go to the Mm -hmm. flute. I'm in the middle of writing a big multi-movement choral work right now, and that's why I wanted to take voice so that I would know what I was asking my singers to do. And Philip, how about you with your composition? It seems like you perform your own composition. Is that difficult to do Uh, or easier? No, it's easier because I get to decide what (laughs) happens. You know, like if I'm learning a piece by Mozart, I have to learn exactly what Mozart wrote. But if I'm learning my own music and it's too hard, I can just change it. And but, Justin, yeah. how about you? Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. <laughs> uh, the really daunting thing for me is that uh, when I write for the piano, um, I know a lot of the literature for piano. So there's a huge literature that I'm, I'm familiar with in Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin and Brahms and all these really masterful composers for piano. Um, and so I find myself comparing the music that I'm writing for piano for myself to that literature um, because I know it so well. Um, and I don't do that with the other things that I'm not as familiar with. So I'm much more critical of myself when I'm writing for my own instrument. It makes it more difficult for me. And what goes into composing a song? That might be a very extensive question. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Um, and it could be any number of things. And I think everybody's process is different. Uh, for me, I like to uh, draft out pieces um, and and plan sort of the large scale uh, high points and low points um, when it's going to get loud and when it's going to get soft um, and if it's uh, if it's an instrumental work that's really really important and if it's a vocal work uh, I typically like to um, like to plan around the the text and the words and what's going on there and is that similar for you Philip? yeah I mean I think it's a it's a blend of sort of improvising as you go and also planning ahead I think of it sort of like writing a novel you probably want to know which characters are going to fall in love, which characters are going to die <laughs> before you, you know, get to that point in the story. But you don't necessarily have to know exactly what they're going to say at that point. Some of that comes as you write, and some of it you plan ahead. So That's a great is novel. Analogy. Is novel composition next for you? Is that where you're? You know, <laughs> I, I, probably not. <laughs> and for you, you don't play the instrument, or I guess you write more complex compositions than what you play. So how do you write, then, your music? Well, I think that what uh, Justin was saying about having an overall plan is relatively standard across the board. If you don't have an overall plan, you're just making it harder on yourself hmm. because then you have to go back. And, and we've, all, we've all gone down that horrendous road. And uh, for me, composition, I usually have an idea that hits me like lightning and I get a migraine from it. <laughs> And uh, my process of composition is, is stretching out that idea so that I can actually hear it and it'll sit still long enough for me to write it down. And I've just found it's a much more, because I'm a mediocre player, it's much more satisfying for me to write complex pieces for, for stuff that I can't play. Mm-hmm. But absolutely planning stuff out. And it is different, you know, from medium to medium. If I'm writing a solo piano piece, it's going to be very different from the processes when I'm writing an electronic piece that has a vocal element to it. They're just, each piece has a somewhat different process, but if you don't start out with a plan, you're usually just making it harder on yourself. Mm-hmm. And Philip, what can we expect this weekend at the composition series? Oh my gosh, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, I can tell you a little bit about the piece that I'm doing. Um, it involves like co- moth cocoons that I've created out of, well, or that I'm going to create out of wood and, um, fabric that the performers will stand inside so you won't be able to see them and they'll be singing sort of mysterious music that I'll be accompanying on the piano Um, so yeah and I know there's some electronic stuff right yep Chris Newman has an electronic piece on it that's going to be in a quadraphonic stereo setup right what does that mean (laughs) that means there are going to be four speakers (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, now, do you get nervous before, you know, you're about to hear a piece that you composed? Justin, we'll start with you on that one. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, it, it takes different forms with different pieces. Uh, I mean, if you're playing the piece, you get nervous to play the piece and to hear what people think of it afterwards. But when you're sitting in the audience, um, occasionally I feel this sort of helpless feeling like there's there, there's people that are going to play the music and it could go really, really well and it could go exactly the way that sort of you imagined it going when you're sitting there composing it. Um, and there could be little glitches here and there and that's a part of the performance and you you have no control over it and you have to just sort of let yourself let go of it at that point. Um, and that's really difficult to do because you've spent so much time creating it and put a lot of yourself into it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you definitely get very nervous just sitting in the audience sort of waiting and twiddling your thumbs and, and hoping that everything goes really well. Do you feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we actually have a very big concert coming up with the Michigan State's new music ensemble tomorrow night that I have a piece on that. And that's a piece that I spent two years working on. And uh, it, it feels, just like Justin said, it feels like having, you've shaped this child that you've handed <laughs> off to someone else to raise, and there's nothing you can do. Yeah. Um, I'm really lucky because uh, the director of the New Music Ensemble here, Kevin Noe, is a fantastic, fantastic conductor, and all of the ensemble players are the best on campus. They're absolutely wonderful. But... Again, you know, if, if a mistake is made or, or so on and so forth, you have to just learn to accept it. And it's difficult when you have, you know, the piece that's been building in your mind for, in my case, two years. And you're Longer listening. Than a and baby. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Two and a half babies. Yeah, right. two and a half babies right there. <laughs> Big load. But yeah, I'm, I'm terrified for this concert. Absolutely terrified. And it's an excited slash terrified feeling because it is such a wonderful group of performers. But I will be sitting there and I will be tense. <laughs> Now, during the com composition process, do you all of a sudden wake up in the, in the middle of the night and say, oh, that's what I need there, that's what I need there? Or do you kind of listen as you go, and it, you know, it's like a baby, it forms slowly. <laughs> or, you know, maybe maybe everybody's different. But Philip, Baby metaphor is getting out of hand. That's too much. I think it's a mix of both, actually. Um, there are times when composing feels like work, and you just have to work through it and find the solutions to the problems that you've created. And sometimes you just have a breakthrough. Sometimes it's in the shower and you're like, oh my gosh, I just realized that that's the answer. And then you have to run down and write it down. Or if you don't write it down, sometimes you forget about it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it just depends on where you are in the process, I think. Okay, that's interesting. And one of my last questions is being a composition who doesn't necessarily perform the work, you might, I mean, it's almost like an actor versus a director. You know, everybody knows the actor's name who performs it, but maybe not so much the director. So do you feel that in composition where maybe the glory's given to somebody else, which might be okay, but it might feel a little weird? I mean, I don't know how composition works. I was always curious in that sense. Well, I've spent some time with some of the, the biggest names in new music, and their compositions are always associated with their names, mm -hmm. um, simply because of the way that they operate. And in this kind of setting with our composition recital, you know, that's, of course, that's where it's going. I mean, we've, we've right. set up the concert so that we can be the ones that are <laughs> glorified, quote unquote. And, uh, but I think it's actually better in, in my case, my own personal case, if the performer is getting the glory, because I prefer to be the one standing in the dark in the back, uh, you know, hiding. And I actually <laughs> want to run out of there before the concert's over with. So I don't have to talk to anybody. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it, my goal is to is to provide an evocative experience for the audience. And that involves them and the music. And that really only has a very little bit to do with me, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. 
Anything else you gentlemen like to add to that one? <laughs> I mean, I totally agree with that. I, I would much rather get practically no credit. Mm -hmm. I, I hate having people come up to me after the concert and want to talk to me because oftentimes I can't answer their questions. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> just I'd, smile to, I'd much rather just let them perform it and I can enjoy it. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on what, what people have to say, too. Well, it's a, a lot of times um, after, uh, after somebody hears a performance, they... Um, there's obligatory comments rather than real genuine things. Right. Yes. Um, and uh, and I really enjoy actually when somebody comes up to me and talks about the piece and and gives a criticism and says, you know, I really, I I liked this, but this didn't work for me, and I can't really figure out why. And then we have a discussion about the music. Um, I really really yeah. enjoy that. So I would say that I agree that I don't always like to talk about the pieces <laughs> after they're performed. I agree with Ashley and Philip, but I. Um, I, I do when it's a certain kind of conversation, mm -hmm. um, when it's really a thoughtful conversation, definitely. Yeah, sometimes it's fun, more fun to make people angry than it is to satisfy somebody, yeah. and I've done uh, a little too much of that. <laughs> yeah, I can think of a few times. Yeah, several of my pieces. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like to add about the concert itself and the performance? Uh, maybe what the audience will feel, and you hope they'll feel when they walk away. Yeah, um, I think it's a really eclectic mix of different types of music. Um, like Philip said, there's going to be some electronic music. Uh, there's going to be some vocal music, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be instrumental music and of a lot of different styles. So you're going to hear music that sounds like um, like nothing you've ever heard before. It's really wacky. Um, it's, it's very, very new. And you're going to hear music that sounds very, very familiar, but maybe with a little twist to it. Uh, and I find that to be a really, really interesting aspect of new music compositions, that there's such an eclectic um, mixture of just different styles of music and different types of music. And um, it's, it's really exciting to listen to because of that. And there's also a certain amount uh, that we really enjoy, despite what we've said about hiding in the back, about actually, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, about actually having the composers in the room. I mean, if you go to see a movie or even most of the time if you're reading a book, you'll, you're never going to get to have contact with the person who gave birth to that. I'm going back to the baby metaphor. <laughs> the person is. who uh, gave birth to that idea. And it's it creates a more organic um, community-like experience, I think, that we actually, you know, I can turn to, hey, I really like that, or right. so on and so forth. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank yes. you very much for coming in. Uh, we look forward to hearing your show, and best of luck. Thank, Thank you. you. Happy Tuesday. You are listening to Impact Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Now, to end our show today, we will have two segments that talk about apples. The first, we will speak with professor in the Department of Horticulture, Randy Budry, about this year's apple crop. Now, last year was like a complete disaster in terms of apple production. It's not always a disaster with regard to the grower community because uh, fiscally they're pretty responsible so that they know they'll be on years, that they'll be off years, that sort of thing. But last year, we had 10% of a crop. I remember being in one orchard, walking up and down the rows of apple trees, and I saw three apples in the whole orchard. Three apples. Three apples. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So if you think about it, they have to grow those trees and care for those trees for that year. So everything they do in that year is a losing proposition. 
So some growers um, manage things better than others, or they might have a better site than others, and so some will have a crop. So last year, some growers had as much as 30% of a crop, but that's still a losing proposition. You can hardly afford to harvest when it takes three times as long for your picking crew mm -hmm. to harvest the fruit. So uh, picking typically is the most expensive operation on a farm. So yeah, it was a bust year last year, and this year we've got a great crop. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably the biggest crop that we have ever had here in Michigan. Um, I think what 30, was it, 30 million? 30 million bushels, bushels is the estimate, yeah. Compared we don't. Well, 2.7 million last <laughs> yeah, year? Yeah, I know, it's 10 wow. times larger. So it's a it's an it's a good thing and it's an a bad it's a mm -hmm. bad thing because you know you get a year like last year and the production is low and um, the farmers once again lose out. But then a year like this and you think that they're going to make a lot of money. Well, you know, with all of those fruit, there's a lot of pressure to reduce the price, and so on a per mm -hmm. apple basis, they don't make so much. So what were the either. prices? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but from last year to this year. Uh, actually, or as it turns out, it, it wouldn't have changed too dramatically, but I do know that those growers that had apples in Michigan, I'm going to give you an example of Honeycrisp, if you don't mind, because a lot of people like Honeycrisp. And I had it, one this morning. Excellent, the deer. <laughs> as I might say to the, re, uh, the viewers or listeners out there, eat Michigan apples. <laughs> and Honeycrisp, if you can get them. So uh, Honeycrisp last year, $800 for a bin of fruit. That's 20 bushels of fruit. Um, so that's roughly 800 to 1,000 pounds of fruit. So that's a buck a pound at the orchard. That's picked off the tree and put in a bin, not sorted, not handled, not put in a retail chain. So at the retail level, is about $3 or so a pound. This year, um, probably in the range of 400 to $550 a, a bin. So the price is at least 30% lower. So mm -hmm. the and, and maybe even more so, more than that. Um, and the thing that you need to think about are all the input costs. So if you think about what the grower does, the same basic um, treatments in both years, but one year they get fruit at, that they can sell for a significantly higher price and another year that, where they have fewer fruit and another year where they have a lot of fruit that they sell at a lower price. Well, um, it, in the end, it's almost kind of a wash. If you think about having a large number of fruit, let's say uh, you're selling them for 500 bucks a bin, which is a lot of money, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. um, but the profit margin is the stuff left over at the end, and all the input costs are the same. So your profit margin just went down by, let's say, 200 percent in one year, basically. I mean, you know, for that bin of fruit, yeah. Um, that being said, like I said, it's a great price, and oh my gosh, I, you wouldn't believe the quality of the fruit out there. It's really going to be a good year for the Michigan growers <laughs> with regard to fruit quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And looking back at last year, can you pinpoint one thing that was the ultimate cause of such a low production of apples, or was it a combination of a lot of bad things? Oh yeah, well, you know, I'm not sure how your listeners will view this, but I just pinpoint global warming. I mean, I'm not going to be very good, uh, very well received in some circles, but yeah, absolutely, it's climate change that caused mm -hmm. the, the crop loss last year. Not to say that we don't have crop losses from time to time, but there's only been one other crop loss of a similar magnitude in recorded history for Michigan. So that goes back over 100 years. Um, but last year, yeah, we had the warmest summer on record here in Michigan, right, 2012. Well, it started very, very early, and so the fruit trees, you know, they're feeling warm temperatures, so they blossom early. Well, the timing of frosts is a little bit independent of the average temperature. So mm -hmm. the frosts come along at their usual time, and this would be in probably in late April, pardon me. Normally, the apple trees wouldn't be blooming yet, but now they were in full bloom, so they got whacked. So in one night, uh, yeah, we lost 90% of the fruit in Michigan. 
kind of interesting, isn't it? It is interesting. Looking yeah. back. Like exactly, that. yeah. Wow. And so, then this, so this year, I was just going to contrast it yeah. this year, and it was a perfect spring. Even though this is still the sixth warmest season on record globally. So it's still a warm year. We don't even recognize it as a warm year anymore. We've kind of forgotten how cool it used to be. At any rate, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh, it's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know. I shouldn't go too far there. I don't know. Don't but, worry about it. Yeah, but the growers have to deal with mm-hmm. it in, in real time on a yeah, daily basis. So That's they difficult. Do. Wow. Yeah. And with this influx of apples this year, is it difficult to, for instance, find the storage and you know keep them all, I guess, ripe for the longest time? How do people deal with that? Yeah. Grocers, well, farmers? That's a great question. And it uh, relates to partly to what I started to talk about earlier. Some growers, uh, like I say, deal with uh, an off year better than others. There's some growers who are vertically integrated, and so those folks have storages as well. Mm-hmm. So on an off year like that, they might just tear down their storage. And I know one particular grower that actually did that. They wow. knew that they were going to need extra capacity, so they revamped their packing line, tore down their uh, existing storage, their, uh, redid their refrigeration for the system, and basically knew that they were investing for the long haul, but then... Um, but then invested at the right time because they know that in an off year, it's going to be followed by an on year. Mm-hmm. This is an on year. And so, yeah, so they're set for storing more fruit and hopefully hanging on to more of those profits. So, yeah, what we do is we try, we, I'm throwing my lot in with the growers here. <laughs> <laughs> what we do is we try to maintain the quality as long as we can. And there are storage technologies that we use. Some of them have been around a long while. Some of them are relatively new. Uh, but we try to harvest those fruit and put them away. And uh, I think this year we'll probably have enough storage. We may not have enough, believe it or not, bins to put the fruit in. So wow. this is, is, you know, there are many limiting factors mm-hmm. in the whole process. Uh, the other thing that could be limiting this year is labor. So uh, those, the growers have to organize labor, make sure it's there, make sure that the containers are there. So these wooden bins that we use here in Michigan made out of Michigan oak trees, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And then, uh, then having the storage. And I think the storage capacity is there. It's the other pieces that might be problematic, yeah. So we need to eat fast then. That's right, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, Moral it's, of the story. It's everyone's <laughs> job to eat more fruit, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Now, are there so. some apples that might be more, let's say, high maintenance than others? To yeah, there for? are, yeah. There are some apples that are absolutely great to store, like a Rome. Nobody eats Romes. <laughs> they start, they're like, a, as somebody once put it, they're like a dog's nose. They're wet and not much more. But yeah, so there are some fruit that will store forever and never really have the quality attributes that really make people want them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are others like Honeycrisp. It's got every known problem, as far as I know, uh, for storage problems for apples, except maybe one. But even that, you know, we'll probably find it in time. It's easy to decay. It has a tender skin. It gets punctured easy by the stems of other apple fruits, so it's tough to handle. It has chilling sensitivity, so it, it, uh, if you store it at the normal low temperatures that we put apples at, it turns brown on the inside or brown on the outside. And if you put it in controlled atmosphere storage, which is one of those technologies I referred to, mm-hmm. uh, it also can turn brown on the interior. So there are lots of ways for these fruit to go bad. And, uh, and like I say, some varieties are worse than others, yeah. Okay. Some store a long time, some for a short time. And I think the idea really is to know your apples and eat, eat them seasonally. So <laughs> now is a great time to eat Macintosh apples, for instance. Mm-hmm. A great time for Jonathan, John of Gold, yeah, and Honeycrisp. And what is your favorite apple? I have to say my favorite apple for two weeks of the year is the Macintosh apple. Yeah, so when it's at its prime and it's crunchy and it's got that beautiful sort of floral aroma to it, yeah, that's my favorite apple. And then when you get out of that season, then it's kind of whatever is at hand. I mm-hmm. like a good ripe gala. I like Honeycrisp as well, yeah. 
Yeah, there, there, there are a bunch. There are lots, yeah. I had my first golden Spitzenberg yesterday. That was pretty nice. What does anyway. that taste like? Or is uh, that it's an, it's to an old one? apple. Okay, something came out of John uh, Thomas Jefferson's orchards. But uh, at any rate, yeah, I, I think I have that name right. At any rate, it's um, a nice apple. It's just mm-hmm. a tart apple, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I... So there, there are hundreds, actually. You got me excited to eat my apple this evening again. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so I work in the Department of Horticulture here at Michigan State, and um, there are a number of dedicated faculty there, and a number of us work with the fruit crops here in the state, and part of our mandate, you know, as a land-grant university is to serve the public, and one of the original ways that we served the public was through supporting agriculture, and that's my job, and it's a job of a number of people over in our department and other departments in the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources. At any rate, yeah, so I think we uh, collectively has, have done a pretty good job of discovering and evaluating some of these, let's say, technologies or techniques that we have, but it's true across all land-grant universities. And so when you think about what the growers now have in terms of tools, they're as a result of work at North Carolina State, they're a result of work at Minnesota, California, Michigan, and so on. And uh, together we keep the information current and we keep the techniques and technologies um, in the forefront uh, in front of the growers so that they can be adopted and used, I guess I'd say, wisely into the benefit of the, of the industry. Yeah. So I think in another eight months or so, you'll still be eating Michigan apples this year because uh, folks have done their job well at the land-grant institutions. And that's where you're thankful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. To follow our previous conversation about the apple crop, we will conclude the show with a quick preview of Fenner Nature Center's 40th Annual Apple Butter Festival that will be this weekend. Program Director Katie Woodhams graced us with her presence to highlight the festival. Well, this is really our flagship festival. Again, we've been doing it for 40 years, and it's just a great way to celebrate our ties to the land, experience nature in autumn. It's so gorgeous, and it's a great way for families and individuals to just come out and see the place. Mm-hmm. Are there any differences throughout the 40 years, or has it been the same every year? What can people experience at the festival? To be honest, it's actually quite the same. We have heritage artisans that come and demonstrate lace making. They do pottery on the wheel, um, even spinning wool. And those are activities... And, and art that has been happening for eons, you know. And so those are still there, and it's a great way for people to kind of see how we used to have to use natural resources. And we still use those same natural resources, but there's a disconnect mm-hmm. between the hand-thrown pottery and, and when it gets to your house, for example. Um, we still have some of the same volunteers, our seasoned veterans, that help <laughs> us peel the apples and make the apple butter. So we do have some of the same faces every year, but we're excited to get new faces in as well. So during the planning process, do you have your fair share of apple butter? Oh, yeah. By the end of it, we're all pretty sick of eating apples, to be honest with you. (laughs) She said she just came from peeling the own apples herself, so they're hand-peeled by Katie. Yes. And another thing that you are having are people can actually try their hand at the cider press. Yep, exactly. Um, In addition to the Heritage Artisans, you know, we actually have a big, huge copper kettle that we put over the fire. So we'll have a batch brewing and people can come and um, use the seven foot long paddle to to stir it. And in addition, we'll have the cider press out so people can try to crank it and just see how hard it was to get your food back Mm -hmm. in the day. And for people who come to the festival, what do you hope they walk away with? And what kind of experience do you want them to have? 
You know, the greatest thing I've seen just in the few years I've been there is when I hear people say, I came here as a kid, and they're there with their children or their grandchildren. And so the legacy of people coming back is something that I really appreciate. And I think that's what a lot of people look towards as far as the tradition of, you know, it's a fall festival that's just been around Lansing for such a long time that people really look forward to Mm -hmm. it. And being a radio station, we always like to make that music connection. And I hear you're having quite a lot of music. Can you talk a little bit about what you'll be um, featuring, we'll say? <laughs> sure. On Saturday, we actually have a music jam. So people can bring their acoustic instruments. And really? it's probably going to be a little more folk and bluegrass. And then on Saturday, we have some cloggers coming out, some more bluegrass. Cat um, Midway and Taylor Taylor will be there. And so it's a really fun, you know, family-friendly music that's just a nice ambiance to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And how about the celebrity stirrers? I saw that on your website. Well, we have a special green and white celebrity stirrer on Sunday, and we're hoping we have a victory on Saturday so that he'll be in a really good mood. Um, and that's Sparty, that, for those of you who aren't sure. <laughs> yeah, Sparty will be there. Um, Burl Schwartz from City Pulse will be there. Um, some local radio personalities. And we also have quite a few mascots. Uh, I think Two Men and Truck is going to be there. And... Um, Oh my gosh, I can't even remember all of them. There's so many. And it's nice we have volunteers that help them out because we don't want them getting too close to the fire, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Probably a good thing. And Michigan State is a land-grant institution. It was founded by farmers who wanted to invest their own selves into the land. And so I kind of drew that connection to this festival. It really is almost like a land-grant festival in which it's time that we appreciate what the land gave us and trying to invest ourselves more into it. Did you make that connection at all when you were planning it or trying to kind of instill that idea into the people? And that's really where this all stemmed from, was really our connection to the land. And when this festival started, it was about canning and preserving and the fall harvest and really making that making that connection much, much closer. And I think in today's world, you know, 40 years later, it's even more imperative than it, when it was when we started the festival. And we have an orchard on the property, and the Fenner property actually was a farm. And so to see remnants of some of the agricultural history of the park is really neat for people to see because they don't realize that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's always a big part of it. And just having the kids come out, you know, this this week we'll have about 500 school children come and help us stir the apple butter. And they'll actually get a chance to plant some apple seeds in our orchard because the trees are getting pretty old. <laughs> they don't produce very much, which is why we have to get our apples from here, from mm-hmm. Michigan State. Good luck at the festival. We hope it brings a lot of people, which I'm sure it will, when you have apple cider and apple butter put together in one location. I don't know how it doesn't draw people in. It does. So, Katie, thank you very much. Thank you. And that is it for us here on Exposure. Thank you for joining us. It has been a pleasure. Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Happy homecoming, Michigan State. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next time, I'm Abby Newton, Impacts Exposure, 88.9 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.